If you need a Bible, the ushers are moving through the uh, aisles now. You can get one from them. But if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John. The book of 1 John would be the first of the three letters at the end of the New Testament that John wrote. So if you're looking for it, go to Revelation all the way at the end, turn left a few books, and you'll find 1 John. 1 John. 1 John starts a little bit different than other books of the Bible. For example, like with Ephesians, we read, it says, Paul to the Ephesians. But unlike Ephesians, 1 John isn't written to any specific church or even a region of believers. Like 1 Peter, he says to all those you know, who suffered persecution and have been scattered, and he lists a bunch of places. John isn't writing to any particular group of people in a place or at a church. He's writing a general letter to all believers. And so because of that, our context or our backdrop for our study in this book, it has more to do with the time that John writes it than who it was written to, which means we need to talk about who wrote it and when he wrote it before we can get our context. So Strangely enough, 1 John is written by a man named Bob. Just kidding. No, it's not written by Bob. It's written by John the Beloved. John the Beloved, along with his brother James, were two of the uh, original 12 apostles chosen by Jesus during his earthly ministry. They were fishermen and business partners with Peter and Andrew. John and Andrew were originally disciples of John the Baptist. We read in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 35 to 37, that they were present for Jesus' baptism. And then the next day, as they're hanging out with John the Baptist, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they decided, okay, well, John, if that's the case, then we need to be following him. And so John and Andrew became two of Jesus' first followers. And John followed him ever since. He served with Jesus during the three years of his earthly ministry. He was the sole disciple present at Jesus' crucifixion, and he was one of those who saw Jesus rise from the dead. He became a leader in the church of Jerusalem, where he served for many years. But after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, he became the lead pastor at the church in Ephesus. And by that time, when he became the, the lead pastor in Ephesus, John was the last surviving member of the original 12. All of his friends were now gone and home with the Lord. Many of the believers that he came to faith with and walked with in those early years were likely now with the Lord. And so it's during the latter years of his life that John pens these five books of the Bible that he wrote, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. By that time, also, every other book of the New Testament had already been written. So this makes these five books by John the last messages that the Holy Spirit breathed to the church. They're kind of the cherry on top for all of the Scriptures. And John's older age, that tone comes out in 1 John because he talks like an older man who is seeking to pass on something important to a younger generation of believers. So what is John exactly trying to pass on? Well, to know that, we need to understand one of the big challenges that Christians faced during that latter phase of John's life. And it was a false teaching known as Gnosticism. Now, what is Gnosticism? 
Gnosticism was really the first Christian cult. Its leaders came out of the church, so they were people who had professed faith in Christ, but they began merging or mingling Scripture with human intellectualism, Greek culture, and Oriental mysticism. And so they left the church, and they started their own group that they said was the only real and true church. John was especially acquainted with the threat of Gnosticism during his time in Ephesus because one of the Gnostic leaders, a man named Serinthus, was influential in Asia Minor and frequently came and preached in Ephesus. John's disciple Polycarp stated that one time John came rushing out of the bathhouse of Ephesus when he found out that Serinthus was inside. As he came running out, he was exclaiming, let us all fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. A bit dramatic. I think I would have liked John. But remember, this is the guy that Jesus called the son of thunder. John is known as the apostle of love, but man, John had no toleration for lies and deception. And he deeply loved the body of Christ and didn't want them to be deceived. Now, the reason that John was concerned about this guy's teaching is because Gnostics taught that God did not create our world. They taught that Satan is a lesser God who created our world. Therefore, everything we see in our world is evil. It's not that evil has entered our world or that evil things happen in our world, but literally everything material or physical in this world is evil. The planet's evil, trees are evil, everything is evil. This pulpit's evil, my flesh is evil. Anything physical is evil because Satan created those things. Now, since all non-matter or spiritual things was created by God, then you have this dichotomy. You have the good God who created spiritual things that are good and the bad God who created physical things which are evil. Based on that, the Gnostics concluded that Christ was not a human being. Rather, a Christ spirit or a Christ consciousness settled on a regular average guy named Jesus, a normal born guy, no virgin birth. He was just a regular guy named Jesus, but at his baptism, this Christ spirit or Christ consciousness came upon the man Jesus and then left him after he died on the cross. So in Gnostic teaching, Jesus is not God and God never became a man. When you would confront a Gnostic about how the Bible doesn't teach any of this stuff, they would say, well, you only learn these things when you become initiated into our group and receive special revelation. That's why they were called Gnostics. It means those who are in the know. When you would join their group, they would say, well, what do you believe? What do you think? Or like, well, how do you know this is true? They would say, you'll find out. And you would have to receive special revelation from God to be part of the group. Now, this view about creation and Christ led the Gnostics to split into many factions, but there were two main ones. There were the Docetics and the Antinomians. The Docetics believed that since all matter is evil, then a believer needs to withdraw from all material pleasure. In fact, you should only consume what is absolutely necessary to survive. So you could never enjoy a meal, you would just eat to survive. You could never engage in enjoying 
sex within marriage as God designed it, but it would only, only purpose would be procreation. You would not be able to enjoy anything in life, but rather you should withdraw from life and keep the flesh from experiencing anything. Antinomians on the other side believe, well, since all matter is evil, it doesn't matter what you do with your evil flesh since it's evil, just as long as your spirit remains detached. So you could engage with a prostitute or murder someone as long as there wasn't, your spirit wasn't involved. This, of course, would lead one group, the Docetics, to embrace a legalistic life of asceticism. They would often live in caves or completely withdraw from society. And then, of course, it would lead the other group to indulge in every physical lust imaginable. And so we can see why John was concerned that believers in his church and other churches are being pulled away by this false teaching. And so, while when we read through the five books that John wrote, he has clear reasons for writing those things, he always has Gnosticism in mind when he writes. For example, John tells us that when he wrote his gospel, he wrote it to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God and the promised Messiah, and that having seen that proof when you read his gospel, that his readers would believe and be saved. This is often why we tell someone who wants to be introduced to Jesus, they want to find out about Jesus, they're not a believer, or if they're a new believer, to read the Gospel of John. You want to know about Jesus? Read John. John wrote it for the whole purpose that you would know who he is, that he's God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, and that believing in him, you could be saved. But focusing on Christ's deity had a secondary purpose, to expose the false teaching in Gnosticism, because they taught Jesus was not God. First John is no different. John tells us at least five times why he wrote the letter, and yet weaved into the letter truths that expose the false teaching of Gnosticism as well. And so as we go through the letter and we understand its purpose, we need to keep in mind that he's exposing this false teaching. So why did John write First John? Well, let's read the first four verses. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which ye have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. John's purpose for writing this letter is to get believers to go deeper with Jesus, to go deeper in fellowship with Jesus to the point where our joy is full. Harry Ironside said this, the epistle of John is the epistle of fellowship. It shows us the way into fellowship with God, for He wants His people to be in communion with Him. Every day, the Lord wants to spend time with you. I mean, isn't that a cool thought? Like, I'm married to a, an incredible woman. She always wants to hang out with me. But even more than that, my kids, when I come home, they want to see me. They want to talk to me most of the time. But Jesus, even more than that, wants to spend time with me, always. Even the times when I'm not very likable, he still wants to spend time with me. And so we read here in 1 John verses, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 
we declare this unto you, that you may have fellowship with us. We want you to share in something we have because we have this amazing relationship with the Father and with the Son. We want your joy to be fulfilled, full to the brim at all times in that relationship. And the rest of John's letter goes on to explain how we go deeper with Jesus. And it culminates with us knowing that we belong to the Lord forever. Look at 1 John 5, 13. We see this phrase, we'll see it five times in the book of 1 John. But he says here at 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm writing to you who are believers already. You've already trusted Christ as your Savior. I'm writing to you that have done that. Why? That you might know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, he says, those of you who are already saved, you've already given your life to Christ, you've turned from your sins, confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that you know that you know that you are His, that you are saved, and that knowing that, you will deepen your trust with Him. You'll keep on trusting Him. You'll keep on going deeper in your relationship with Him. Now, let me tell you something. You will not be going deeper with Jesus if you don't believe you even know Him. If you don't have assurance of your salvation, if each day you go through your life, most of them you spend wondering even if you are saved, you're not going to go deeper with the Lord because you won't think you can. You won't think you're accepted by Him. You won't think He has good things for you. You won't think He wants to spend time with you. You'll think you can't spend time with Him. And you'll be so self-absorbed with that idea of how you fall short or how you don't measure up or how you're not good enough or how God doesn't accept you. You'll be so caught up in that that you won't see all the things He wants to do through you in regards to those who are around you. And so John wants to settle that issue forever in our hearts. So that being absolutely assured of our salvation, we can joyfully plunge into the depths of our relationship with the Lord. Now, when our relationship with the Lord is not good, when we are not going deeper with Him, we don't fellowship with Him. And when we're out of fellowship with the Lord, there's usually a good reason. Warren Wiersbe said this, if a true believer is out of fellowship with God, it's usually for one of three reasons. Either they have disobeyed God's will, they're not getting along with fellow believers, or they have believed a lie and therefore are living a lie. And a believer can never have joyful fellowship with the Lord when one of those things stands between them and the Lord. They open the door to the enemy's condemnation in their lives, and they give the flesh an opportunity to enslave us to sin. And so we're going to see all throughout this letter that John is going to weave three themes obedience, love, and truth. And you see, as I fellowship with God, as I go deeper with Him, these three aspects of my life come under the control of God's Spirit and enabling me to go deeper in my fellowship with God. Warren Rearsby said, a Spirit-controlled mind knows and understands the truth. A Spirit-controlled heart feels love from God and toward others. A Spirit-controlled will inclines us to obedience. And that's the true knowledge we need. Not some human intellectualism or a philosophy of life or mysticism. This is the true knowledge that John is going to share with us in his letter, the knowledge that we need so that we can go deeper with the Lord. And so, as we get ready to dive in this morning, I ask you, are you ready to learn how to know that, to know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved? 
Are you ready to put behind you this concept of constantly doubting your salvation? And are you ready to learn how to joyfully find the satisfaction that comes only from going deeper with Jesus? Because if you are, they'll be very rewarding. Well, let's begin to dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1. John says, that which was from the beginning. He starts off his letter by using a, what's, this is a relative pronoun here, which means we need to find out what it's related to. And what it's related to is the very last part of the verse, of the word of life. The word of life here means concerning Jesus. We'll talk about the phrase, the word of life, and why it refers to Jesus later on. But the idea here is that John starts off his letter by saying, I'm going to share some important things that are relative to any discussion about Jesus. If we're going to have a good conversation about Jesus, we need to understand these things. And why does he start with the person of Jesus? Because when we're talking about healthy, meaningful Christianity, we need to come to the understanding that Jesus is a person. Jesus is a person. Christianity is about a relationship with a person. Christianity and Jesus are not ideas or metaphors or philosophies of life. They are none of those things. Jesus is a person who literally lived and died. And he's a person who lived and died so that we could have a relationship with him. If the discussion about Jesus is incorrect, if it gets onto something else, then I can't have a meaningful relationship with him. If we're going to turn Christianity into a philosophy of life or a political philosophy or a health philosophy or a mystical thing or an experience we have or something we do that governs how we live, and that's all it is, or if that's going to be the predominant discussion, then we are going to mislead people about Christianity and Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, listen, there'll be many that will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this and this and this and this and list out a bunch of things? And didn't we do it in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. He doesn't say you didn't do enough. He doesn't say, well, you needed to do more of this. He didn't say you needed to be engaged in this activity. He's going to say, I never knew you. The phrase, I never knew you, the word know there means to be in an approving relationship. You talked about me all the time. You did things in my name. You were involved in a lot of things that church communities are involved in, but you and I never had a relationship that I approved of. We never had a real relationship. That's a heavy thought, but it it conveys an important truth. You and I don't get to decide who Jesus is. We don't get to decide what happened to him. There were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and Jesus' death. Those are facts that aren't allowed to be altered by my wants, my emotions, or my experiences. I don't get to go and say, well, we're living in different times than Jesus lived in. And so based on that, we're going to take the ideas or the general concepts that Jesus spoke about or the way Jesus lived, and we're going to translate that into modern-day behavior and going to, therefore, create our way of understanding him and Christianity. That isn't allowed. We don't get to do that. You see, the Gnostics in John's day preached something radically different from those facts about Jesus when they discussed Jesus. And the best way to recognize a false narrative 
is to know the true narrative, right? John, being an eyewitness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is qualified to give us that true narrative. John did that in his gospel. But he reminds his readers of some of the important parts of that discussion when he starts off this letter. Why is this so important? Because it has application to us today. Because we have modern-day Gnostics. We have people who claim to speak for God or claim to have experiences with God or claim to say Christianity is this now. Those who claim to have an intellectual leg up or special revelation about Jesus. And our best defense against those false claims is to remember these important parts of the discussion. And so John, as he's going to be exposing Gnosticism, he starts off with these basic ideas. And so the first discussion point about Jesus is that Jesus has been involved in time from the moment of creation. He says, that which was from the beginning existed from the beginning. Uh, Genesis 1-1 is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is similar to the way that John started his gospel, but with a different perspective. In John 1-1 in his gospel, John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, in the beginning means that Jesus existed before the creation of time. Before God created time, space, and matter, Jesus existed. And since Jesus predates creation, he is uncreated and without beginning. John is declaring at the start of his gospel that Jesus is God the Son, co-eternal and co-existent and in fellowship with the Father and a partner in the creation. But the phrase in his letter here, from the beginning, is a little different. That goes back only to the time when the created universe came into existence. And it speaks of what is true about Jesus from that time up until now. In other words, what John is sharing is that in his letter, he's a little bit more focused on Jesus' development inside of time. And therefore, he's going to go into greater detail about Jesus' humanity than his deity. And so, in doing that, John next explains that Jesus, who was involved in time from the moment of creation, eventually stepped into time and became a man. That which was from the beginning, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. I love that John says we, because he's not claiming to be the only eyewitness of Jesus. He speaks as, I'm just one of a large group who have testified the same thing that I'm testifying to you now. And I love here when he says, we have seen, we have heard. It's in the perfect tense, which means a completed action with ongoing results into the future. In other words, it was so real, and John experienced it so many times that Jesus' voice still rang in his ears decades later. Jesus' face could still be perfectly formed in his mind decades later. There are probably people that have come into your life and have had an impact upon your life, and maybe they're gone now or they're far away, but you can still hear their voice. I can remember things my grandmother said. I can remember things that my, my very first pastor said. The, my grandmother and him are both home with the Lord now. I can remember the things that they said, things that impacted my life. I can still hear their voice. I can still hear the way my grandmother would say my name. It rings in my ears. That's how much I spent time with her. And John's saying, I spent so much time with Jesus. His voice is still ringing in my ears. I can still see him in my, in my mind's eye. He says, 
which we have looked upon. This is different than seeing. The word here looked upon means to spectate, to observe, or to contemplate. The Docetic Gnostics, they claim that Jesus did not have a body. Their name, Docetic, comes from the Greek word dokio, which means to seem. They said it only seemed like he had a body. They would say if he came and walked by and you tried to put your hand, touch him, your hand would go right through him like a ghost. The reason they taught that Jesus was a spirit who floated on the ground was because, well, since all matter is evil, Jesus can't be evil, so he has to be a spirit. John says, I am qualified to accurately state that Jesus did have a body, and he was a real person, because I didn't just glance him or hear his voice a few times. I observed and contemplated Jesus to a great degree. And I love that because it shows how human the Bible is. You ever had someone tell you something and you just go, I don't know about that. Really? Did you see that? Did that really happen? But then you start to contemplate. You go, well, how well do I know this person? Can I trust them? And then sometimes you go, well, they, I know this person really well. They wouldn't lie to me. And you, you go through these reasonings, and based on those reasonings, we form conclusions. What John is saying here is he's saying, everything you would have asked about Jesus, I did. Everything you would have thought about Jesus, I thought it. And I came to this conclusion that it was all real. I think to myself when I read the Bible, I'm like, like all the gospel writers, I'm like, how come one of you was not looking at that basket every time they went in there to get more food? Because that's what I would have been doing. Jesus would be like, hey, pass that out to that row over there. And I'd be like, sure. I want to see what happens when it's empty. Because that's just the way I am. I've joked it before. I should have been born in Missouri, the show me state. Because I don't believe anything anybody tells me. John, he's a guy who says, I didn't just take things at face value. I watched. I contemplated. Every question you could have asked, I asked it. And my conclusion was, none of this is made up. I conclude that Jesus was a real living person. And not only that, he says, that which we, our hands have handled, to touch, to feel. Jesus was the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, the one who leaned on Jesus and felt the heartbeat of God. Jesus, interestingly enough, used this word handled to prove that he was real and not a ghost. It's almost as if he knew someone would say that later on. In Luke 24, verse 39, he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see me to have. John declares, I didn't just see him with my eyes or hear him with my ears or spectate his life with my mind. I touched him. I felt him. Jesus was never a ghost. He was always a real person in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And yet, even though he says it's important that we remember that Jesus became a man, he also reminds us that Jesus was always more than just a man. And in verse 2, he takes this little aside. If you have a King James, it's in parentheses, because it is. It's, it's like an aside. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. Before we get there, lastly, it mentions here, not only is he a man, but it mentions he's the word of life. The reason that the life was manifested as important is because he's the word of life. 
This phrase, the word, is John's special word for Jesus. In John chapter one, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. A person might see you from afar and be able to recognize you enough to go, oh, that's Will. They could even learn some things about you by observing how you live closely. They might go, oh, he's kind, or he's got a short temper, or oh, he likes this. You might know some of those things by observing closely. But people really learn who you are when you communicate with them, when you use words to talk to them. I am always amazed that after, I've known Bev, we were friends in high school. We started dating between our junior and senior year, dated for five years, and been married for 26 years. So I've known her for 35 years. That's a large portion of my life. I'm amazed still when we'll be just, sometimes if you're married and you're kind of just laying down going to bed and you chit-chat beforehand and you talk about things. And I'm always amazed by the new things I find out about her just from talking to her. I was thinking just a few weeks ago, we were just laying there on the pillows and chit-chatting, and she made a comment about something, and I said, you like that? She's like, oh yeah, I love that. And it was something simple, nothing too important, but I had never known that. I was like, I've known this woman for 30 plus years. I didn't know you liked that. Oh yeah, I've always liked that. How did I not know that? She never told me. You, someone communicates who they are and you can know them the best through their words. Well, Jesus is the word of God. He came to express himself so human beings could understand what he is like. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, and verse three, I think it calls him the express image or the mirror image of the Father. The brightness of his glory. The outshining of his glory. When you see something that's really bright, you go, what is that? Well, he's the part that you can see that doesn't blind you. The one that you can know that something's there and know what it's like. He is the word of God. And he's the word of life, John says here. God has life in and of himself. Literally, it reads here, Jesus is the word of the life. He's the way that God communicates to us this life that he has in and of himself. I have not given birth to any children, but I have participated in the birth of four children. And Yet, I did not give them life. I contributed my really messed up DNA to their DNA pool, but I did not give them life. Only God has life in and of himself. Only he can breathe life into something and make it alive. This pulpit's not alive, but if he breathed life into it, it could dance. So I don't have life in and of myself, but the Lord does. And as he's the word of the life, He is the one that God communicated through that we might experience the life that is in him. And so the life that exists in God was revealed through the incarnation, God becoming a man. He is that. John reminds us of that here. And he pauses there now with this aside. He brought eternal life from God to us, for the life was manifested. This eternal life, this life that's in Jesus, that he is self-existent, that he gives to us, it was revealed. The word manifested means to make known something that already existed, but had previously been hidden or unknown. Jesus had always been, but he became visible to humanity through the incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says to us in his gospel. Jesus was not a normal human being born of a normal mom and dad getting together 
who became possessed by a Christ spirit at his baptism. He was God the Son who entered our world, was born of a virgin, the one who possessed life in and of himself, and then came and offered it to us. John says this life was manifest, and we saw it. We have seen it, and we bear witness. We want to provide you information about it. About what? We bear witness and show unto you, inform you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so here is where John begins to hone in on his point for writing this letter. The idea here where it mentions that, he says that that life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. The phrase that it was with the Father means it was, he was in living, active relation and communion with the Father for all eternity. When the Bible tells us that God is love, that's a proof that there's more than one member of the Godhead because there cannot be love if there's no object of love. And yet God makes it very clear, this is my beloved son. He doesn't say, this has now become my beloved son. He goes, no, this is the one who has existed always as my beloved son. He has always been the object of my love in whom I am now well pleased. He looks at the life of Christ up to that point in time and he says, he has pleased me with these 30 years of his life but he has always been my beloved son. That relationship that they have, Jesus entered into our world to reveal it to us. John is focusing on Jesus' humanity at the start of his letter, but he doesn't want us to forget that Jesus wasn't always human, that he dwelt with the Father for all eternity past in perfect fellowship with him, equally powerful and self-existent, and that that one came, stepped into our world, and now he offers that same relationship he has with the Father to us. You see, the gospel message isn't that Jesus is a ghost or a really special guy. It's not, well, here's a way of life that can be better, or here's a way of approaching, name the subject, parenting, politics, whatever the subject, health, work, all that kind of, here's a better way of doing it. That's not what Jesus came to the earth for. He is God come in the flesh, life-bearing and therefore life-giving. And he reveals himself to us so we can share in the fellowship he has had from all eternity with the Father. And that's what verse three says. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, he says, John is saying, me and the other scripture writers have something that you can all share in, that we want you to all share in, something far better than what the Gnostic Special Inside Club offers, something far better than any group out there can offer you. It's fellowship with us. And what is it? What is that fellowship? He says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship, it means a close mutual association, a joint part participation with someone else because you have a common bond or through your common bond. Fellowship is more than just companionship or social interaction. I can get either of those things by joining lots of groups. But the fellowship of the church is centered around a joint participation in knowing Jesus, not anything else we have in common. 
It's centered around the fact that we can all know the Father and Jesus just like John did, even though we didn't hear, see, or touch Jesus like John did. Fellowship is a supernatural thing. It's where two believers share in a supernatural living, firsthand relationship with Jesus and the Father, and they share that with each other, which means I can have absolutely nothing else in common with them, and it just doesn't matter. The common bond we have in our living relationship with God allows us to go deeper with one another and with the Lord. And you know what I'm talking about if you've experienced it. You know that. You haven't physically seen Jesus, but you know Him, and you absolutely know when you have come into contact with someone else who knows that too. You absolutely know it. There have been multiple times where I've been on a plane flight or somewhere where I'm not with people I know, and all of a sudden you bump into somebody, and I'll be reading my Bible, or they'll be doing something, and I'm like, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah. And you start talking, and it's just like you know each other for 70 years, even though you just met them, because it's the one you both know together that's the common ground. It's because that same internal life that's working in you is working in them. And when you interact, it works even more in you both. You see, eternal life isn't just about living in heaven forever. It's a quality of life we begin to experience now. And that experience grows not just in our personal relationship with God, but it also grows in, as it's working in our relationships with all those other people who have eternal life. There are those who would substitute a relationship with Jesus for religious feeling or philosophy of life. But that's not why Jesus stepped into time. It's not why he lived and died and rose again. It's not why Peter, James, and Paul, and John risked their lives to spread the good news. Some of them gave their lives to spread the good news. They did it so we could have what they have and we could share with them in it. Jesus did it so that we could have what he has with the Father and share with him in that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul says this. He goes, for the creation was made subject to vanity. In other words, every person that was created, God made them with like an empty spot inside. And then he says this. He goes, they weren't made that way willingly. It's not like we were all sitting and saying, God, you know what? Put a big empty space inside of us that can't be filled with anything but you because we tend to go astray and try to fill our lives with other things. We, weren't, we didn't create ourselves that way. We had no say in this, but God created us this way because he wanted us to find, he wanted us to look to him for that satisfaction, that we would learn not to look in other places for it. So all of creation was made subject to this emptiness, but not willingly. And then he explains, by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. God made us in such a way, not only that we have an empty spot, but we have a hope that it can be filled. We have an expectation that something out there fills that need. Something out there gives us meaning in life. The only thing that can satisfy that craving is a relationship with Him. Now, that won't be fully realized until we are with Him in heaven, but we can begin to experience it now and grow in it now. And so that's why John says in verse 4 what he says here. 
And so we write unto you that you may have fellowship with us. And the fellowship we have is with Jesus and the Father. You want that. But we're also writing unto you that your joy might be full. Everything John's going to talk about in the next five chapters is so we can go deeper in our fellowship with Jesus and so our joy can be full. The word there doesn't mean something to get to the place where it's full. It means to get to the place where it's full and it stays full. It means to remain fulfilled to a full degree, to persist in a state of fullness. Let me ask you, have you ever worked really hard to win at something and you finally come out on top? Like, I've beaten Bev at Scrabble once in our life. Like, we haven't played that in forever, but when we were a younger married couple, play it all the time. I could beat her at everything else. I could never beat her at Scrabble. The one time I beat her at Scrabble was amazing. But it's not like I said, I, well, I've done it, but I never need to play Scrabble again. No, I want to beat her again. If you've ever won anything, and, and particularly not something silly like that, but something you worked hard for, and you come out on top, and you know the thrill of victory, did any of that satisfy you to the degree that you never wanted to win again? Of course not. Maybe you've saved up to purchase something, and you finally reached that point, now you can get it. Did you never, ever want to save up and purchase anything else? Of course not. That's why athletes come back after winning a championship the next year and are wrecked emotionally when they lose and fall short. (laughs) I would dare you, don't go up to that person and go, what are you whining about? Why are you all upset? You won last year. Doesn't satisfy. Always looking for more. That's why we still have goals and dreams even though we reach some of our goals and dreams. Achieving things in life isn't evil in and of itself. That's not my point but neither can they be truly fulfilling to the degree that our fulfilled feeling remains intact forever. But a meaningful relationship with the Lord and others who know Him does satisfy. It is enough. I'm not a huge fan of Augustine, but he said this, and it's really powerful. He said, For there is a joy to those who love you for your own sake, who joy you yourself are, This is the happy life to rejoice to you, of you. This is it, and there is no other. My oft battle is to remember that truth, that everything I need is in Him, that that satisfaction will come from going deeper with Him. Our oft battle is to seek other things rather than seeking to go deeper that we might find that satisfaction. The New Testament and the Old Testament repeatedly call us to that place of satisfaction. Isaiah 55, one through three, you can read it on your own time, but it starts off by saying, oh, all of you who thirst, why do you go out and buy bread with money that doesn't satisfy when I offer you something that does satisfy for free? Jesus, on the great day of the feast, in John 7, verses 37 and 38, he stood up and he said, ho, (laughs) come unto me, and out of your innermost being will gush rivers of living water. I will satisfy. In the very end of Revelation, some of the last words of Scripture, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I'm everything you need. And so the spirit and the bride respond to that and say, come. The Christians up in heaven, John's hearing them say, come. Stop looking for other things. The Holy Spirit's saying, come. 
Let him that hears say, come. And let him who is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And so as we begin our journey through 1 John, I ask you this morning, how's that battle going for you right now? Are you finding the satisfaction that comes with going deeper with Jesus, or are you often unfulfilled in life, even though you're a Christian? Wherever you are in that spectrum, as we start this journey, all of us can make the decision this morning to say, I want to go deeper with Jesus. I want to learn from this book about how to do that and to understand that's my chief need. I want my joy to be full and stay there. I want that. And if you approach the study of this book that way, I know that God will satisfy you. Knowing Him and being satisfied in Him has been the chief pursuit of all who love the Lord in Scripture. And so as we start this book, I ask you this morning, will you make that your chief pursuit? Let's all stand. Before we pray, I want to read to you the words from the hymn in the garden, the third verse. Beautiful song. He says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I've never regretted the time I just sit down and hang out with Jesus. I have many times regretted not doing that or not doing it more. So Lord, this morning we want to have less regret. (laughs) We want to be those who are open to being challenged about going deeper with you. We want to know that we know that we know that we're yours and then that we just plunge into the depths of that relationship, that we can find that satisfaction, that joy that can remain full, that we can be at that place where we're good, no matter all the craziness that's going around us, maybe all the disappointing things that are going around us, maybe all the the concerns. We think, Lord, this world is just going crazy. Our community is going crazy. And yet, Lord, we can have joy and peace and hope, and we can keep moving forward just like Moses, Lord, walking through all the the hail mingled with fire that's crashing all around him because of your judgment falling. He's just walking right through it all without a fear in the world because he knows I belong to the Lord. Those hailstones aren't for me. We want to be those who can walk into the midst of a world that's lost and dying and needs to hear about you and show them something different, something supernatural, Lord. So God, do a work in our hearts as we study 1 John, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.